Welcome to the Gaggle Podcast, where we bring you inside the newsroom to talk Arizona politics beyond what's in print. I'm Michael Squires, the politics editor at the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. And joining me at our Arizona Capitol Bureau this week are... Dustin Gardner, state legislative reporter. Dan Nowicki, national political reporter. Ron Hansen, I cover the congressional delegation. Yvonne Winget Sanchez, I cover the governor's office and state politics. This week on The Gaggle, a state lawmaker says sexual harassment is a problem at the Arizona legislature. How prevalent is it? But we start with Senator Jeff Flake and his blockbuster announcement that he will not seek re-election And he did it in dramatic fashion in which he excoriated Trump for his abrasive tone and chaotic administration. Dan, uh, Flake told you in an interview yesterday, quote, there's not a place for a Republican like me in Trump's Republican Party. Is that true? Uh, Well, it's increasingly looking like that. Uh, He says he believes the, you know, the GOP is under a fever or a spell, as he put it. And he thinks that the spell won't last. But he thinks, unfortunately, for his uh, reelection prospects, it's not going to uh, go away before next year. So I think he was looking at uh, the polling, looking at his situation, his path to uh, not the nomination in the in the GOP primary is getting narrower and narrower. And he finally said that. He didn't want to make the kind of compromises that he would probably have to make on issues like immigration and uh, free trade that uh, in order to win those Trump voters over. Uh, he could have done this with the news release, but he chose to do it in a much more dramatic fashion. Uh, talk about that. What, what did he do and, and, and how planned out was it? Well, uh, kind of not clear when he came to the decision precisely that he was not going to run. Condoleezza Rice was in Arizona for a fundraiser on on Thursday, so you would assume, at least at that point, he, all, all systems were go on his campaign. But, um, yeah, he definitely wrote out this speech. He delivered it in dramatic fashion, and it kind of was following up on his book uh, that was published August 1st, The Conscience of a Conservative, which, looking back at it, was maybe kind of the first signal that, that this was the direction he might be headed in. Uh, where he kind of uh, rebuked his own party for embracing Trumpism uh, and its tenets, its, its conspiracy theories and its protectionism and its nationalism. So, so maybe that was like kind of maybe the first hint. But uh, he's definitely the type of guy who feels that you know he needs to speak out on these issues that, that people need to hear from him. I know that was much to the chagrin of some of his staffers who didn't think that maybe... <laughs> You know, he he needed to speak out on every little thing if he wanted to get reelected. But uh, Flake definitely feels strongly about that. And and, and so I think you're going to be hearing him speaking out uh, from conscience in the future. Um, I I think you maybe could see this kind of taking shape when the book came out. And, uh, you know, I I think his staff might have been caught off guard by that as well. Right. Yeah. He didn't tell his staff because... Uh, his st- he thought his staff would try to talk him out of it. And, I, and I've talked to staff members who, who assured me that they would have indeed tried to talk him out of it because they, they saw it as a bad move in terms of uh, his political career just getting reelected. But if, you know, Flake seemed to maybe be looking beyond that even then. I do think that he probably thought he could maybe finesse it. I think he did try to finesse it. I don't think he wanted to leave the Senate under these terms. I think he would have liked to stay there. But um, at some point, he, he just... Uh, kind of gave up and realized that the that the GOP no longer had a place for him and it should it should be noted that Flake is you know he's he's not really a, a, a liberal republican at all he's you know kind of a libertarian leading conservative in the tradition of Barry Goldwater and, and Ronald Reagan uh but you know maybe that era of the GOP has passed as well you know 
Goldwater and Reagan conservatism, you know, rest in peace, 1964 to 2016. So, Ron, you outlined some of the reasons why he wasn't running for re-election. Can you kind of run through that list that you came up with? Yeah, I think it, as much as anything, the, the party has changed. And there's just no denying that the GOP primary electorate has different priorities now than what it did when Jeff Flake was first elected. Um, Flake increasingly seemed out of step with where Republican voters are at, in particular things like international trade um, and immigration reforms. Here he is standing talking about uh, comprehensive immigration reforms or supporting NAFTA. These are things that Donald Trump rode to the White House talking about building a wall and, and you know tearing up the worst deal ever. Um, the voters' mood had shifted, and I think that, as much as anything else, just made it very clear that uh, whatever his conservative uh, resume may look like, he was out of step with what some of the core issues that define today's conservative voters uh, wanted to see. But there are other things, too. I think that uh, uh, Jeff Flake really did feel that this was uh, something that wasn't worth winning the way he would have to do it. Uh, I think that bothered him. Um, and there were uh, there was the reality that um, there was no guarantee of success. That if he had done what he thought he needed to do to defeat Kelly Ward, it might have left him in a bad position against Kirsten Cinema. It just really was uh, sort of tying him in, in knots, I think, uh, the way forward. So, Dan, uh, Trump responds in Trumpian fashion with uh, tweets uh, in the early morning hours. As inevitably as morning follows night. <laughs> Trump uh, responded to Flake with a tweet storm. And, and so he, he didn't really answer the criticisms of, of his style that Flake had of, uh, you know, the policy. But he uh, cited his 18% approval rating that he wasn't going to win anyway. Um, is this, like, do, would you expect Trump to have taken on some of what Flake had said? Uh, I really wouldn't have expected Trump to, to take much of the criticism to heart, Um you know, a lot of it has been said before for many months, and Trump just shrugs it off. He he doubled down on his statements on Flake in in a press spray uh, interview, uh, in which he you know dismissed Flake. Somebody he, he diminished him, said he never heard of him until his quote horrible book came out, which was published August first, after uh, you know Flake had already or uh, Flake had already been targeted by Trump in tweets in 2016. So. That doesn't really ring true, but, but he basically dismissed Flake as a guy who couldn't get reelected in Arizona, so now he's taking it out on him. He said that uh, he actually thinks Flake stepping out of the race helps his stature in Arizona. He says he's uh, well-loved in Arizona and that this development will help him even more in Arizona. So can we expect to hear more from Flake in the coming months? Ron, what do you think? I think we're going to hear a lot from Jeff Flake in Washington about Trump and the uh, the style of doing business moving forward, um, how active Jeff Flake wants to be in, in taking that message to Arizona uh, remains to be seen. I think right now his focus is going to be on, on the agenda uh, unfolding in Washington, and uh, I think Arizonans will be interested uh, parties in this, but I, I think he's really got his eye on, on some federal issues at this point. Dan, I'm trying to trademark the term the Corker Caucus because uh, I, I think Jeff Flake's going to join Bob Corker as uh, sort of Trump's favorite Republican punching bag. Right. And uh, in addition to Jeff Flake, you know, I guess you could say maybe John McCain is a member of that con 
caucus as well. And it's kind of a, a remarkable moment in Arizona history where you have both both of the U.S. senators, both Republicans, who are sort of you know unshackled from from you know political realities in the sense that neither one uh, is probably going to ever face voters again. So they're really free to say what they want and speak their conscience about Trump. So this is from Eliza Collins, our buddy in USA Today, Washington Bureau. And she said that some Republicans were expressing optimism that with outflake in the Senate race, in the 2018 Senate race, there will be in the mix some more mainstream lawmakers uh, that, that could get in the race. And that she had this quote from uh, McConnell's PAC, the Senate Leadership Fund. Uh, the one political upshot of Senator Flake's decision, t- decision is that Steve Bannon's handpicked candidate, conspiracy theorist Kelly Ward, will not be the Republican nominee for the Senate seat in 2018. Uh, based on what you heard yesterday, I know, Yvonne, you spent a lot of the day talking to people who might be interested in getting in and their friends and uh, confidants. Do you think that, does that ring true to you? Are we gonna see a more centrist candidate get in? Or are we gonna see people trying to run to the right of Kelly Ward? I think you're going to see a candidate who runs to the right of Flake, but not so far to the right of as, uh, as Kelly Ward. There are a lot of names out there, um, sitting congressmen, including Trent Franks, Paul Gosar, David Schweikert, although he is said to be eyeing a bid for governor in 2022, and that seems to be his focus. Potentially, Martha McSally. Uh, Kirk Adams, Doug Ducey's chief of staff. Uh, A lot of people were speculating that he might jump into that uh, race, although I think I have it on pretty good authority that he will not be uh, interested because, in in his view, uh, he he operates pretty much the same as as Jeff Flake. Um, Kelly Ward clearly sees Flake's departure as an upside for her. She agreed with him that it was time for him to go, and he said his she said his criticism of of Trump was um, was unfortunate and not deserved. Uh, and she seems pretty confident that she will be able to run a um, formidable race against uh, whoever she will face in the primary and then eventually, in her mind, hopefully, the general. So you interviewed her yesterday. You say she's convinced this is good for her. What else did she say about what this does to the dynamics in the race? Well, she said that this is just further proof that Arizonans want someone who will fight for them in Washington and get things done, like uh, Donald Trump is doing on the national level. And, and Jeff Flake was, was, was unable to fight for them in Washington on a- everything from taxes to illegal immigration to health care reform. And that this um, frees, uh, frees up space to allow her to be that warrior back in Washington uh, I think a lot of people would probably disagree with her analysis. Uh, I think there are many people who think this actually will make it much more difficult for her because uh, she will draw an even tougher primary challenger. Indeed, all the hot Twitter takes yesterday, Ron Hansen, were that uh, this was really bad news for Kelly Ward. What do you make of it? I think they may be right. Uh, Kelly Ward has really had, I think, uh, some good fortune in the sense that she was able to uh, run last cycle as the alternative to John McCain. 
to this point, she's been the alternative to Jeff Flake. Now, with Flake out of the race, she really has to make the case on her own merits. And I think that may be a tougher sell. What is it that she brings by way of experience, by way of ideology, all those things that will make people affirmatively embrace her rather than voting against somebody that they have any number of complaints with? Um, and I think it's pretty certain that she will face somebody else in the Republican primary, possibly more than one person. Uh, there are others, uh, you know, Matt, former Congressman Matt Salmon, Jay Heiler, uh, Robert Graham. There are a lot of folks who could jump into this, uh, folks that we aren't even accustomed to seeing in the political fray, all of whom can come in and sort of uh, create instant momentum, could uh, have access to uh, significant fundraising. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that's been um, a problem for Kelly Ward to this point is, is raising and keeping money. She doesn't raise a heck of a lot, and she spends quite a bit of what she does bring in to wage a successful Senate campaign. She's going to really have to put the pedal to the metal and start banking some of this money and, and creating a sense of inevitability and that would keep the field rather clear. And I don't think that she has the presence to, to command that kind of uh, respect at this point. And I don't know that the state GOP party will help her with the infrastructure. I mean, she does not seem to be their kind of candidate. Well, why is that? I mean, she was in the newsroom yesterday. She's polished. Uh, she had, you know, what she was going to, how she was going to answer the, the questions about Trump's tone and her, you know, association clearly with his policy, all that. She had good answers for all of that. Why would they not embrace her if this is now the party of Trump? Well, truthfully, and I mean no disrespect with this, but I think there are some members of the party, um, well-placed members of the party, who view her as cuckoo-doodle and view Trump as cuckoo-doodle. And so I think these are people who are um, of the so-called establishment wing of the party, and um, they they see Kelly Ward as a threat to democracy, just like Donald Trump. Well, and, you know, let's just put it out there. The, there are a lot of Republicans who remember well the Sharon Angle experience and other races that sort of slipped away where the party may have overreached and gotten behind a candidate who uh, was just too conservative or too uh, personally um, unlikable, and it cost them Senate control uh, at least one cycle more than uh, they might have otherwise had. And so I think there's a, a fear of losing ultimately uh, in next November's elections that, that is, you know, creating a lot of anxiety as well. Uh, I mean, you know, just from personal experience covering that 2010 Senate race in Nevada when Senate then majority leader Harry Reid was public enemy number one for the Republicans and he was able to carpet bomb the establishment candidate, and so he got Sharon Engel as opponent. That's exactly who he wanted, and it played out well for him, even though he was, he was not popular, even in the state. He was able to pull that off. So it's that kind of scenario that they're worried about. That's right. Dan, I want to ask you, how much is this just a question of tone? If you look at uh, the people who really support Trump, a lot of what they like is just, you know, kind of the bomb throwing, that he's shaking things up, that he's... You know, he's, he's willing to just, uh, you know, speak unfiltered. It's, you know, real talk, not politically correct is kind of the, you know, the catchphrase that they use where, you know, 
is it tone or is it policy? Because I really don't hear like the policies, you know, gonna, the tax plan is going to run the deficit up by 1.5 trillion. Republicans used to be big deficit hawks, apparently not anymore. What do you think? Is it tone or is it policy? Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with tone. And, and one thing I've heard from many people, just everyday people, is, is they like that Trump is a fighter. You know, they view people like McCain when he was the presidential nominee and Mitt Romney's maybe too nice, tried to tried to buddy up with the Democrats, didn't really throw hard punches at Barack Obama in those elections. They like the fact that Trump is a fighter and he's really willing to brawl. And, you know, that is what they like about him. So when, when a guy like Jeff Flake kind of critiques the coarseness and, you know, the combatant, combativeness of Trump, and a lot of these Republicans are saying like, uh, that's what we like about him. That's why we hired him as president. But they also want results, correct? Does that work as a governing style, I guess, is my question. Well, it doesn't seem to be working at the moment. He'd have to, he's going to have to start delivering on some of his promises. But, you know, so far he's been willing to just blame, you know, other people, the Republican majority or whoever else. And so far his, uh, you know, his core supporters go along with them. So uh, among the names, though, did we hear any, like, uh, my favorite former Suns players? We Charles Barkley, Walter Davis, Alvin Adams, or... I wouldn't mind seeing Walter Davis make a comeback. Uh, some of the names that we did hear are uh, some ones that have been shopped before. Uh, Kurt Warner, obviously. Also, uh, perhaps Luis Gonzalez. Um, and, yeah, there's always the uh, ever-present Charles Barkley, right? I think he wants to wait for governor. Justin Gardner, a Republican state lawmaker, Michelle Ugenti-Rita, said she's been sexually harassed by male colleagues in the Arizona legislature and has faced retaliation for reporting that experience. And she put this on social media. What's been the response to that? There's been a, a pretty loud response. Um, a lot, of, Several other lawmakers, um, mostly women in the Democratic Party, spoke out and said they too feel that there's a, a, a troublesome culture at the legislature. They described a kind of a, a culture of sexism where women are often talked down to or um, tr not treated equally to men. Um, no one has gone public with any specific new allegations of, of sexual harassment, but it certainly made a splash. Um, and there's also been a response from leadership in the House. Um, Speaker J.D. Mesnard has said that he takes the issue very seriously and that, it, that harassment won't be tolerated. And he's going to, um, I guess, initiate a conversation to look at any sort of reforms that might be needed to create um, a process so lawmakers feel comfortable coming forward and reporting instances of harassment and feeling like those complaints will be dealt with. Um, and part of that is because Representative Eugenti Rita has said that her complaint didn't really um, result in any action because members are elected, they're not traditional employees, and leadership felt like there wasn't much they could do. So they're going to look at what, what could be done in, on that front. Did uh, Were you able to confirm that she had made that complaint with the, the legislative leaders at the time? So 
She said that the issues of harassment were primarily toward the beginning of her term. Um, she took office in 2011. I spoke to former Speaker of the House, um, Kirk Adams, now Chief of Staff for Governor Doug Ducey. He said he didn't specifically recall um, discussing any instances w with um, Representative Eugenti Rita, but he said he believes her and he agrees that there needs to be reform. I reached out to two other speakers uh, who served during Eugenti Rita's time in the legislature. Neither of them responded. So at this point, we haven't um, found another person that specifically recalls her reporting this instance, but Kirk Adams certainly says that he believes her and takes it seriously. So you say J.D. Mesnard says that he's taking it seriously and wants, wants to put some reforms or some kind of policy in place. Did any inkling of what that would look like? You know, there's really no indication what that would look like today. Um, Speaker Mesner had just said that he wants to have a conversation about what issues have occurred. And he said until we can, you know, until the, the chamber can have that discussion, um, it's unclear what policy reforms might be needed. But he's, I guess, in the process of starting that conversation with Rep. Eugenti Rita. Um, no response from Senate leadership yet, but it looks like Mesnard in the House is certainly interested in taking it up. So Yvonne, you've uh, walked the halls of the legislature, uh, talking to lawmakers and lobbyists. Is there a sexual harassment problem that's endemic there? Certainly it's um, something that is talked about by some lawmakers and lobbyists who, you know, live inside this capital bubble and frequently roll their eyes or um, make comments off the record about certain folks down here, mostly males, uh, and their treatment of, um, of women. Um, it is something I think that few people want to obviously speak out about because they want to represent their clients. They want to get bills passed. They want to kill bills. Um, but definitely it's talked about. It happens. I don't know how frequently it happens, but it certainly happens. And it's, it's not isolated to just them. I think um, you have people outside of those typical um, categories, <laughs> political categories, who sometimes feel it. I, not too long ago, had a pretty high-profile senator who tried to force his suit jacket around my shoulders, even though I repeatedly told him I didn't want it. And I was actually in the middle of an interview. And uh, it was pretty uncomfortable. But you know, certain behaviors continue. And I think until uh, certain reforms are put in place, I don't know that they'll stop. And I don't know that reforms will stop them. So, so what would, I mean, she said that she felt pressure to, to relent to whatever, you know, the sexual advance was in order to get like bills furthered. And is that the kind of allegation that, that you have heard people talk about? What I'm most familiar with are allegations or assertions that it is okay to allow certain male lawmakers to speak to you in a certain kind of way, to refer to you as a pretty little thing, or you'll, they'll, they'll do anything for a certain lobbyist because of the way she acts or looks. Um, and um, occasionally these lawmakers get access to um, a scene that they might not otherwise be privy to, restaurants cocktail hours, parties. Um, so I think it's talked about more in that sense. I've never heard any kind of physical sexual harassment allegations, but the verbal stuff and the kind of handsy stuff, definitely. So where does this go from here, Dustin? I think we'll be watching closely to see how Speaker Mesnard deals with it. Um, is there a serious 
discussion of reforms coming up, um, and Representative Kelly Townsend, um, the majority whip in the House, has also talked about uh, bringing forward a bill. And I think the details of this are unclear, but she's talked about some sort of legislation that creates uh, a process outside of, of House or Senate leadership for reporting complaints. So it'll be interesting to watch how that unfolds. Final segment, Yvonne, what are you dressing as this Halloween? Penelope has moved on from Sophia the First to Elena Vavilar, so she's doing kid version, I'm doing mom version. Ron Hansen. I will be the uh, president if I can find a tie long enough uh, to go with it. I've got some scotch tape I can lend you. Dan? Uh, I think I'm going to go as a Roman centurion this year. Dustin? No costume for me this year. Yeah, it doesn't sound very believable. I'm dressing as my Twitter avatar, so Renee Magritte's self-portrait top hat, apple in front of my face. That's it for today. Thank you for listening to the Gaggle Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at MG Squires. At Dustin Gardner, Gardner with an I. You can follow me at Ronald J. Hansen, H-A-N-S-E-N. You can follow me at Yvonne Winget. I'm Dan Nowicki at Dan Nowicki, just like my byline. Thanks to the politics team. Our production team is Jojo Huckaba, Haley Sanchez, and Kayla White. Please subscribe to the show and review it on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. We'll see you next week.